I don't like the new upgrade to iPad because it takes me three extra steps to get to where I'm going all the time. If you just know anybody at, you know, at Apple, just let them know that, okay? That's, that's my complaint. Okay, years last go, and I'm in, so now. Yeah. Um, I don't know about where you grew up at. Uh, I don't know all of you, I know some of you. Uh, most of you know, if you've been here a while, that I did not grow up around here. I grew up on the East Coast in Virginia, and um, I grew up in a Southern Baptist background. And so I'm going to reinforce every stereotype you've ever heard of Southern Baptist in the next few minutes. Uh, I didn't want to do that, but I thought as I thought about it, I probably will because people have this whole idea when you say the word Baptist is fundamentalist and, and hellfire and damnation and, you know, preach it and, you know, the kind of whole thing, you know, I don't know if you know what that means even. But anyway, um, there wasn't, the church I grew up in was very much like this, except that I began to ask myself some questions. Um, I began to realize something when looking back. I grew up in a church where acceptance by others often depended upon primarily what you did or did not do. Okay? And it was not, and looking back, I realized it was not necessarily a biblical list, but rather extra biblical activities, which was the things that defined us. For instance, you were a good Christian in my church if you went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. We had all those services going on, you know? Anybody grow up in that kind of environment where if you're a good person, that's what you did? Yeah, some of you did. You know all about that. And if you didn't do that, you were not considered like one of the A-list players, you know? So it's kind of the deal. Also, I found out there were some things that I, I grew up in a church uh, that I found that, that was different when I came here. Uh, for instance, um, in my church, uh, one of the things you didn't do, and no Baptist churches on the East Coast, you don't do this, uh, and a lot, most churches that are uh, conservative, um, you, didn't, you didn't play cards, you didn't dance, and you didn't drink, okay? Not necessarily that order, okay? And, and the thing was, is, is it was part of the deal. And I didn't understand why, because it, I didn't see it in the Bible where they talked about playing cards anywhere. I'm not talking about gambling. I'm just talking about playing cards, you know, or, 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 you know, dancing. It wasn't a big deal to me because I couldn't dance. Actually, it was a relief, you know, so it was kind of like, okay, I can't dance, so I don't have to because it's against God's will, you know, and uh, um, it was kind of weird. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. And then drinking, drinking man was like, that was the big taboo, okay? Even though in scripture, no word is, I, I cannot find any word that says you should not drink at all. I do say where it says, do not be drunk. You know, don't treat it with, but it doesn't talk about that in that sense. So, so where did that all come from? Well, I got to college, Carson Newman College, which is a small Southern Baptist related uh, liberal arts college in Jefferson City, Tennessee, near Knoxville. I went there for undergraduate stuff. And, and one of my professors finally explained to me how we got doing that. And then he said it really came out of a culture that we grew up in. And it's called the frontier culture. And the frontier culture is not what you think about West. Frontier in the days when it was raised up was like Kentucky. You know, Daniel Boone, you know, that kind of stuff. And in those days, you had two centers of culture in towns, those small towns. You had the church and you had the saloon, okay? And what had happened in saloons? You, you, you drank and you played cards and you drank some more. And then you, 
And then sometimes you danced. They had dancing going on there. So everything, literally, culturally, the reason this happened, this is, this is the truth, the reason it happened is that everything that the saloon was for, the church decided to be against, to differentiate themselves in that culture. And so it kind of came down. We inherited that kind of like mindset and culture. Even though it was not necessarily biblical, it was a cultural thing that to define who we are. And some sense of us going like, oh, that's why we don't do it. So at Carson Newman, you know, I still, we played cards. Man, we played cards like all night long. You know, got colleges, you know, I don't know about you guys, but that was what we did in college besides study. We didn't gamble, you know, we just played, you know, all kind of crazy card games. I love cards. I play, every time I get with my family, we play cards. So I don't know if that's a real big taboo thing. I can't find that in scripture. So the other thing was, you know, uh, uh, dancing. Kind of blew it out of the water when, when, my, when my wife, it wasn't my wife then, when, when I was about 20, 21 years old, and, and my, this new pastor came to the church, and he brought this girl, her name was Vicki, and is his daughter. And we uh, started uh, dating. Well, I, we didn't really date at first because she's five years younger than me. And, and the thing is, is that the crazy thing about it is she come over to our house. She was a good friend of one of my friends, uh, one of my sisters. And, and the thing was, is that is she come over, and here's the pastor's daughter and they start playing music and dancing and my wife is an insane dancer I mean she loves weddings she goes to weddings she likes the receptions she she's like the life of the party dancing on the floor as soon as it starts doing you know certain things man she can move it oh my gosh and I'm going like I'm just jealous of her because I can't do that I mean yesterday I was I've been or a couple days ago I've been mowing grass and I was listening to my playlist and you probably don't know who this is, but Bruce Hornsby in the range, and was this song on there, uh, this song on there called Walk in the Sun, and I was just, you know, just going around and doing <laughs> And my wife, if she'd have seen me, she'd probably thought, what's wrong with you? I go, That's, that song makes me move. So Walk in the Sun, Bruce Hornsby, great dance song. But anyway, so, you know, those type of things, but the thing, and then drinking, you know, the drinking thing, you know, the reality I come to find out later is that Baptists don't drink publicly, they just do it in private. Okay? And so we had that. So we had, that's where it kind of came from. Now I'm going to talk about that more a little bit in a minute. But the reality is, is this. We've been talking about the one another's of Scripture. And we'll conclude this series next week when we talk about how to spur one another on to love and good deeds and works and stuff like that. And the day I want to talk about one, though, that, that's so misunderstood, but also so important as well. In Romans 15, 7, it says this. It says, except one another... Then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God, accept one another. And in preparation for this, I was reading um, some books and some commentaries on this passage and, and on this one another. And Gene Getz, who was a professor, wrote uh, in, in, a, in a book called Building, one another, Building Up One Another, says it this way about this. He says, nothing shatters true spiritual unity among Christians more thoroughly than extra-biblical rules and regulations that we use to evaluate a person's relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of the things I talked about that I grew up with. When acceptance or rejection of others is based on a legalistic mindset, it leads rapidly to judgmental behavior and pseudo-spirituality. It also creates a false guilt, destroys personal freedom to really be what God wants a Christian to be, and often leads to a violation of the true biblical standards for Christian behavior. Now, I have to say this and balance it, though, because the Bible does lay down behavioral expectations for Christians. But it also, on the same end of that, condemns acceptance or rejection based on external patterns that go beyond specific scriptural uh, teachings. And so, 
the, the thing I found in life is this. We, have, we tend to go to extremes in life. Very few of us are balanced in regard to certain areas, particularly this one. The two extremes that people begin to go to is this. In our struggle to be Christian, in our dealings with each other, we seem to repeatedly fall into one of two extremes. One is we either have a hardline, judgmental rejection of anything that is not just like us. And so if people are just like us, we accept them. On the other end, some people go to the other extreme of that, and, and, and they have this open-ended acceptance of just about anyone or anything, anything goes. So we have these two extremes. And so when I had to ask myself this question, what did Paul really mean when he exhorted Christians to accept one another? What's, what does he mean by that? Well, one of the things I have to look at is not only what Paul said there, but what he said in other places as well. Because a true understanding of God's grace, as we look at the teachings of Paul, the teachings of Scripture... The true understanding of God's grace and freedom uh, that we have in Jesus Christ leads to holiness, not worldliness, not extremes. And Paul spells it out in a, in a little letter that's part of what we call the pastoral epistles. It's First and Second Timothy and Titus. And next month, we're going to study the book of uh, the, the little, little letter to Titus, which is timely for where we are in the life of the church because Titus, the pastoral epistles, talk about leadership and things like that. And, and so one of the things we're going to talk about, Titus chapter 1, the first Sunday in November, really deals with the qualifications of leaders, elders, people who lead the church and, and what we're to be there. And then chapter 2, though, talks about some things, and Chris is going to talk about that. But Titus chapter 2, Paul spells this, this thing about that... that um, that uh, our grace and freedom in Christ leads to holiness, he says it this way. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. If, if it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify us, for, for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Basically, Paul says here, he says, the grace of God, God's, grace means God's undeserved, unmerited favor. That God gives us something we don't deserve. It's called grace. And that's how we're saved. And what it leads us to is not uncontrolled doing anything you want to do. But it leads us to, Paul says, to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. It's, it's, that's what it leads us to. So in the verses preceding Romans 15, 7, which is the focal verse today, Paul talks about this concept of, and this is where we have to understand the context of this verse in Romans 15, 7. Uh, he talks about this concept of being one-minded, of being together in Christ, that being in Christ should draw us together, not push us apart, and why it's so important to God. And so in this context, Paul exhorted believers to accept one another. So let's read the couple of verses prior to that along with verse 7. Romans 15, 5 through 7 says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 7, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. In this verse and in this context, what Paul talks about here, this is accept one another. He uses Jesus Christ as the example for acceptance. He says, we're to accept one another like what? Like Christ accepted us. And so the basic question that it raises is this out of the scripture then. How did Jesus Christ actually accept us? 
How did he do that? Because that's the measurement of how you, we are to accept others. So we need to look at that for a few minutes this morning. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus Christ had accepted us of what you know of Scripture, did he simply say things like, well, I will accept you if, and then he puts a bunch of stipulations on it. He said, I will accept you if you're a Cubs fan, or a Cardinal fan, or a Metamoron. Uh, Metamoron, excuse me. I was called a Metamoron before, okay? Or Washingtonian, Okay. Does he accept or live in Eureka or Roanoke or wherever you happen to be? Oh, you, you can only be from that place, you know? Or I accept you because you live a certain lifestyle that is acceptable to me. Is that how God accepted you? No, the Bible says to us that when we became Christians, Jesus Christ accepts each of us unconditionally. And we have a problem with that because we don't experience that too often. Unconditional love. Because almost all the love that we have for one another is usually conditional if we really get down to the root of it. But Jesus, or, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, this is how God accepts us. For it is by grace that you have been saved, that unmerited, undeserved favor, through faith, this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, Jesus Christ when we look at it and we dive down into this, Jesus Christ, how did he accept us? Jesus Christ doesn't even ask us to clean up our act before he accepts us. Rather, he said that he accepts us just as we are. I mean, some of you don't, probably don't know some of the old hymns, but I remember some of the old hymns, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. I mean, I can quote hymns that I grew up with. I haven't sung them in 30 years, but I can quote them. But the reality is, is that, you know, amazing grace, you can probably, you know, some of those songs, it talks about this, this, this grace that God has. He accepts us just as we are, weaknesses and all. And he tells us to come to him and receive him, and then he'll clean up our act. But he says, you know, I'm going to accept you before you clean up your act. And that's good news, because for, for, forever, I, mean, I was great this morning, those three videos you saw. Uh, they were people that got baptized in the first service. We actually had four, as, as Nate was saying. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, the thing is, is if those, all those people and all of you and, all, and me included had to clean up our act before we came to Christ, we had to have, be sinless, we'd be hopeless. Because we can't do it. And so he says, I can accept you unconditionally. And Paul, to kind of like talk about this in, in the chapter before, chapter 15, chapter 14, to sit in judgment on another Christian is in violation of Paul's exhortation to accept one another. Romans 14, 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Or one translation calls it disputable matters. What are disputable matters? If you could accept somebody because they measure up, he says that's disputable matters. If, if, they, if they dance or play cards, Okay or drink, or whatever you want to put the stipulations on. And in both the Roman and the Corinthian churches, uh, some Christians, and, and this is, will seem strange to us from a cultural standpoint, some Christians were refusing to engage in certain, I would call them legitimate activities. You're going like, uh, when you hear this, you're going like, what's the problem? Because of previous sinful associations with these activities. And one of these activities involved eating meat that had been offered to, to idols. Do any of you have a problem of eating meat offered to idols? Anybody? Come on. There's got to be one person has a problem with that. You're going like, what's that? That's not a cultural issue, but it was a huge issue. This was a huge thing in the early church. 
because they had this meat offered to idols. And some people said, well, we can eat it because it's not really, you know, no problem. And other people were like, well, we can't do this. It became this divisiveness that they decided they're going to have two camps, you know, the, the meat eaters and the non-meat eaters of idol, uh, idol food. And that became an issue that divided them. And so Paul, when he talks about, he said in Romans, he talks about, hey, I want you guys to be one uh, together. He says, don't, that's not what our purpose is. And so, and he talks about this in in 1 Corinthians, and I don't put it up on the screen, but just to refer to it, 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 4 and then verses 7 and 8, he says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world saying, hey, people don't, you know, people out in the general world don't have a clue about the idol thing. They don't care about it. And that there is no no one but God, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are so accustomed to idols that that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, a little g. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. He's saying the problem is not with the meat, the problem is with the person. Their attitude toward this. In verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, or no better if we do. So he's saying, hey, this shouldn't be an issue with you guys. But you've let these disputable matters, these, these, these uh, opinions p- cause you to pass judgment on others, which cause you not to accept one another, which pushes you away from one another, which cause you not to have unity in the body of Christ. He said that should not be. So how did he deal with this problem? In Romans 14, 3, Paul says it this way. The one who do- eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted, and he doesn't have the word in here, but it's, it's in the Greek, both of them. God has accepted both of them. And it has nothing to do with whether they eat meat. Because God, when we come to Jesus Christ, how does he accept us? Unconditionally. So he says we're not to be the judge, uh, judge others in areas that are not specified by God as sin. Now, after exhorting both mature and immature Christians not to judge one another, Paul then focuses on something I have to just spend a moment looking at today as well. He focuses on mature Christians. In Romans 14, verses 20 uh, and 21, and then chapter 15, verse 1, he says this. All food is clean. This is another area of acceptance. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother or sister to fall. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul is saying this to us. Those of you who consider yourself mature, how do you want to deal with that? Don't, don't, don't. Uh, Don't think you have this freedom to do anything you want to do because anything you do may be out of bounds because it may cause others to stumble. Not just feel bad, okay? I'm sorry if you feel bad. But I'm talking to people to go around the runway. So let me give you an example of that. I did not drink alcohol. I don't, I don't believe scripturally. I have a, you know, there's a problem with drinking alcohol. But I grew up in a culture on the East Coast where pastors and mature Christians didn't do it because we were afraid, and this is the other issue that I have, it may lead somebody who is young to look at me and say, oh, Pastor Bill drinks so I can drink all I want to and lead them down a path. I grew up with an alcoholic step-grandfather. He was the nastiest guy you ever wanted to meet. And because of that, I don't believe, folks, if you drink alcohol, that you're sinning. I believe that you can allow it to become something that dominates your life. 
and that's a sin. Or you can drink to extreme, which the Bible says is a sin. Do not be drunk. But the issue is for me personally, as Paul is talking about here, he's saying, hey, if we're mature, we'll limit our own freedoms. So it won't cause others to stumble as well. And so that's a form of acceptance as well, of being allowed to do that. So Paul, see, Paul's talking, talking about unity and acceptance here. And then he talks also about showing partiality, which is another form of not accepting people. Romans 12, 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, be willing to, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Uh, James in his uh, uh, little epistle, James chapter 2 verse 1, says it this way. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. See, James was addressing a particular problem here involving the rich and the poor. And and you're going like, this sounds strange, but sometimes it happens. James chapter 2 verses 2 through 4. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor at my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And James in chapter 2 verse 9 tells what this means. He says, if you show favoritism, you sin. James doesn't mince words. He just says, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. He's saying that prejudice, favoritism, and discrimination in the body of Christ rejects and alienates some Christians and accepts others. And he says, we're to accept one another just as Christ accepted us, warts and all. Does it mean we condone everything they do? No. But we accept them. We bring them in. I mean, the thing is, you know, we've talked about this through this whole one another series. All the one another's of scripture says that we're one another in the body of Christ. We're to relate to one another in different ways. That every member is important. Rich and poor, young and old, black and white, weak and strong, cardinal and cub. And even those of us that don't care. And if we show favoritism, we also destroy the unity, harmony, and oneness in the body of Christ that Christ and Paul both prayed for and commanded. I want to close today with, um, I don't know what you, have you, I, I got to say this to start with. Have you ever like bought a car that you never had before, a type of car, and after you bought it, you didn't realize how many of those cars were out there? You see them everywhere. You're going like, oh, I, thought I had the only car like that. And now everybody's driving one of those cars, you know? You ever done that? It's a weird thing. Yeah, you're sticking your head. Yeah, it's weird. I will tell you something that's weird. Since, since, I, since May 22nd, when I shared with you leading on, leading on empty sermon, and I shared with you the whole effects of burnout and depression in my own life, everywhere I look, there's stories, and people share with me stories, and I read stories about it. It's like this everywhere. I didn't know it was out there before. And um, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite people to read. I read several blogs, Christian bloggers. Uh, I, I may start writing a blog. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but I read about five or six guys that they're just special. Some of them are pastors. Some of them are staff members. Some of them are church manager people. Um, but one of them I read is from a guy named Mark Waltz, W-A-L-T-Z. 
Mark Waltz is, I don't know what his official title is, but he is a guy that I learned so much from about first impressions, about how to make impressions. He is the head of first impressions at Granger Community Church in South Bend, Indiana. It's a little church of about seven or 8,000. Um, and he, he has, a tremendous, has a tremendous ability to communicate. He has a background in retail. He, he was a customer service manager for, for years for, uh, for, what was it, Nordstrom's? Uh, you know, that's one of the highest customer service ratings of any place in the world. And he came into the church world years ago. And so I read his blogs. It really has to do with, with how we make people feel welcome and things like that. And just the other day, I pulled up. I hadn't read it in a while, and I hadn't really thought about it. And so I don't know why I read it. I think it was God directed me. Because when I read it, I'm going like, ah, oh, this is what I want to conclude our service with today. What Mark Waltz had to say in his blog, um, Because People Matter. This is what he says. I'm just going to read this, okay? A common mantra in the church goes like this. God loves you right where you are, but too much to leave you there. You ever heard that? Ever said it? I've said it. Okay? He said, I've said it too. It's true. It's well-intended, but sometimes I wonder if our mantra actually risks communicating an unwillingness to love people right where they are. I talk to others a lot about accepting people right where they are. It's at the core of our guest services training I do with churches and organizations. It's what I teach. And yet I'm embarrassed that I am still learning to practice this no strings attached, unconditional acceptance of other people right where they are. I believe it, but admittedly, I too often still have expectations that honestly risk reflecting a lack of acceptance. God loves you right where you are. What if we stopped there? What if when we, we listened and sat with people in their pain and in their chaos and their painful consequences and their confusion, what if we entered into their journey, empathized with their pain, validated their feelings as real feelings? What if we demonstrated God loves you right where you are with an honest, unconditional acceptance of them? The sad truth is that too often we're so eager to move people from where they are, we risk not giving them space to experience God's love right where they are. We want change for them now. And even though our intentions are good, our mantra often reinforces what people already believe. God loves, and this is what people believe, God loves me where I do, when I do what's right, when I change, and when I move from where I am. I can tell you from experience I've heard that a thousand times. What is it that makes it difficult to put a period at the end of the statement, God loves you right where you are? Maybe we're afraid we'll communicate, and this is what I've heard so often, maybe we're afraid we'll communicate that we're condoning behavior or an attitude or a sense of hopelessness. Maybe we're afraid we're reflecting tolerance as a trite, politically correct nod to acceptance. Most of us know nothing of God's unconditional love, meeting and loving us right where we are until another human being genuinely loves us just like that, unconditionally. Most of us have only ever known love from someone else when we do the right thing, meet their expectations, make wise choices, and win their approval. Most of us have never experienced unconditional love from, what, from another human being. Too often what we hear is, I love you, but I really love you when you change. And although I was raised, and Mark Waltz says, raised in the church, I wasn't until my mid-30s that I experienced unconditional love. And this is where it gets a little weird, and I didn't know any about this. Not weird. It gets really real here uh, from this point on. This is where he experienced unconditional love. 
I'd just been released from the psychiatric ward of a Seattle hospital. After two weeks of painful truth-telling about myself to therapists and wounded peers, strangers, until they sat with me in my pain, my first assignment out of the hospital was to find four people I trusted back home. People I trusted enough to sit with one at a time and tell them everything about myself. Not only the story of my depression and suicidal ideation, but the story of me. My fears, thoughts, desires, and hurts, my shame, everything, the stuff I'd hidden for years, convinced that if anyone knew, they wouldn't accept me. So hesitantly, I sought out these four people. First of all, my wife, Laura, and then my three best friends, Rusty, Doug, and Drex. And for two hours plus, I sat with each of them, beginning first with Laura. I confessed, I revealed, I told the truth about myself, all of it. I wept, I felt remorseful, I wept some more. While I trusted each of them, this was a whole new level of trust. It was vulnerability I'd never practiced. I desperately needed their acceptance. And I honestly couldn't predict the outcome of those conversations. Would they accept me right where I was? It was high risk. Would they hear the truth and walk away? Would they need time to process and decide if they could continue a relationship with me? Would they forgive me? Would they love me? Laura was the first, the first to hear me and the first to accept me right where I was, period. She wept with me, she entered my pain, she sat with me, she held me, and she told me this. There's nothing you've ever done that can make me love you less. And there's nothing you could ever do to make me love you more. I love you. That was enough. My wife covered every exposed area of my life with grace with unconditional love, and I was overwhelmed in the best of ways, and there was more. My three friends, Rusty, Doug, and Drex, each demonstrated the same mysterious, unconditional love. They sat with me, they cried with me, they hugged me, they told me the same thing the Lord said, there's nothing you've ever done that can make me love you less, and there's nothing you could ever do to make me love you more. I simply love you, right where I was. Their love didn't come with any demand for change. They didn't use the mantra, God loves you right where you are, but too much to leave you there. Instead, their message was clear, I love you right where you are, and I'll love you if you never change. It was then, in those gifts of human love, unconditional love, that I first understood God's love, his unconditional love, his amazing grace. Grace meant I didn't feel the pressure to do. I didn't feel the expectation to be different. I didn't experience a conditional equation of, if you do, then I will. Grace allowed me to be right where I was, without judgment, without rejection, without disappointment or demand. I found God's unconditional love in the face and embrace of my wife, Laura. I discovered God's grace in the acceptance and hugs of my friends, Rusty, Doug, and Drex. They were, and they are, Jesus with skin on. They taught me to experience genuine love is to experience Jesus. To experience Jesus is to know unconditional love. Thank you, Rusty, Doug, and Drex. You listened to my story. You gave me the courage to tell the ugly, unspeakable parts of me. You showed me grace, and I still thank God for you. Thank you, Laura. I'm forever indebted to you, and yet because you continue to show me true love, I don't feel obligated. Instead, I feel deep gratitude, and I love you right where you are. And then he concludes it by saying this. I want to practice an abbreviated mantra to what I've heard and repeated. I want people to experience grace from me. Grace that says... I love you right where you are, period. That to me is an example of what Paul is saying in Romans 15, 7. Accept one another 
just as Christ accepted you. And I'm so glad that Mark Waltz, somebody I've met, somebody I, I admire, I had no clue about his past experiences, but somebody had the courage to not only experience, go through the experience of that, but also to share it with others. Thousands of people follow his blog every day. And my hope and my prayer is that me and you will be just as transparent with other people. That if you've never experienced unconditional love the way Mark's talked about there, that you will. Because I think, Mark, what he said is true. Until we experience unconditional love with skin on, to somebody we love, somebody we know, our spouse, our kids, our friends, love us that way, we may never truly understand what it means to live that kind of love. I am so blessed to experience that for my wife and for my kids. And because of that, I can live life in such a way that I understand what it means to live in light of God's grace and his love. And I can accept others that way. And when I don't, it reminds me of, man, what a messed up person I am. How can I possibly not accept them where they are? And I think if we're all honest, we'll be the same way. Accept one another. Then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace and your love, for your mercy. I thank you, God, that more than anything this week that you have um, reminded me once again of how blessed I am to experience that unconditional love for my wife, Vicki, and for my kids, Kara, and my son, Keith, and and for many friends over the years as well. I thank you, God, that because of that, I have experienced you with skin on. I've seen what it means to accept one another and say, I love you. I, 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 no, no, no matter what you did in the past, it's not going to cause me to love you less. And no matter what you do in the future, it's not going to cause me to love you more. Because I love you, period. I accept you, period. That's how Christ accepts us. And because of that, because of that, we have hope. And we can experience God's mercy and his love and his grace. No matter how broken or how messed up our life has been. Because God accepts us where we are. Yeah, the fact is, is that once he's accepted us, he's going to take us to places we've never, never been. He's going to grow us up. But that doesn't, his acceptance is not based upon the fact that we'll grow a certain direction or do certain things, but simply from the fact that he loves us so much. God, more than anything, help every person here today and every person hears this message to get a taste of what unconditional love is in their life. 
and help each one of us, God, to accept others the way that you accepted us. That's when people will come to know you, God. Not when we point our finger at them and tell them when they've done something wrong. Not when we try to get their, fix, fix their life. But simply when we sit with them in the midst of their pain. And love them unconditionally. Guide us now, God, this week. And all we do and say that we would experience that amazing grace in our own lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.